Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves in him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed and were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I'm going to skip ahead now to uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Thank you. Why don't we pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you so much for your living word. 
that speaks to us of the word, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we think more about that this morning and the blessings that we have in him, please encourage our hearts. We've um, had a great weekend, had great weather. We thank you for that. We've had good times. Um, We've had good teaching and there's so much to take in. But Father, just help us to concentrate for a few minutes more to appreciate, to delight in all that we have in Christ Jesus, for his name's sake. Amen. Two weeks ago, this weekend, I was in Birmingham at the cultural mecca that is the St Andrews Trillion Trophy Stadium. Um, That's where Birmingham City play, in case you don't know. Um, I was taken there by a friend, it's his birthday, and he said, um, why don't you come and watch Birmingham City with me? I love sport, as you know, so I went along to watch Birmingham City play Stoke. Possibly the worst football match I've ever seen in my life. Um, But I had a good time, and I enjoyed just putting aside my true football dedication to one minute and pretending to be a Blues supporter. I'm sorry, if you're a Villa supporter, I realise that um, that's a bit hard for you. At half-time, they only read out one football score, and it's the Villa score. And um, if Villa are losing, the crowd go wild. And they were. They were losing to Crystal Palace. The crowd went wild. And then onto the pitch at half-time came this couple. And the stadium announcer had his, you know, his radio mic. And he said, oh, this is... I can't remember his name was Mike. He wants to say a few words. Handed the microphone to Mike. And Mike got down on his knees and proposed to his girlfriend who was there and said, Jane, whatever your name is, um, I love you. Um, you mean so much to me. I couldn't give a better place to do it. Um, <laughs> please... Please, will you do me the honour of being my wife? At which point the crowd, together, almost in unison, joined in with the chorus, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what you're doing. She said yes, and they carried on shouting at her for about another 30 seconds. And I joined in, because it, it was quite good fun, actually. <laughs> there was a sense of you know, purpose, a sense of being together, that kind of, we all were sort of focused on this. Football crowds have got a good sense of humour. And we were kind of focused on this, this one event that was happening on the pitch. I don't know whether he thought it was going to go better than that. I think he probably could have worked it out. It was going to be a bit of a disaster. Anyway, it was good fun and I enjoyed participating. I enjoyed being there for the day and cheering on the Blues. They won 2-1. The winning goal was scored by a 16-year-old. Um, I was quite impressed with that. The son of the man I was with, who was 16 and three months, was not impressed that the person who had scored the winning goal was younger than him. Um, but apart from that, we had, a, we had a good time. And it was just nice being part of a crowd and nice cheering on the team. And, you know, it, was, it, was, it gave me a buzz. Even though it was a rubbish game of football, it gave me a buzz. And um, I have to confess that um, shouting, you don't know what you're doing, at the new fiancé was probably the highlight. <laughs> now, when we get together with a group of people and we're all focused on the same thing, we think, we think that's being together. We think that's being one. But the Bible has a bigger vision for that. And it's our next blessing in Ephesians chapter 1. Remember, we've been looking at these seven blessings. These blessings are meant to stir in in us praise and delight and joy that God has so richly given us everything spiritual in Christ Jesus. So praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're chosen We're adopted, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're enlightened, we're included. We are included together. Inclusion is a bit of a social buzzword, isn't it? Um, Governments for for some years now have been trying to promote inclusion. 
sometimes called social inclusion. Um, I, I saw that firsthand, and, and many of you will in Birmingham as well. When I was um, working for the Proclamation Trust, which I was doing until about two and a half years ago, I lived in the East End of London. And the East End of London is a real melting pot of different nationalities. In fact, in our church that I was in, it wasn't, wasn't a huge church, um, but we had 65 nationalities represented. So it was quite a sort of broad spectrum. You can imagine some of the challenges that we had there. But in the East End as a whole, there were two dominant people groups. And the two dominant people groups were Bengali Muslims, mainly from Bangladesh, but some from India, Bengali Muslims, and working-class white East Enders. They were the two groups. And the way that the East End worked is whatever the government did, whatever the local council did to try and promote cohesion, inclusion, it always defaulted to those same two groups. So however you try to allocate social housing, still there were estates in East London that were 95% Bengali Muslim, 95% white working class. However you try to integrate schools, there were still schools that were almost entirely Bengali Muslim. My daughter, my youngest daughter, went to school, um, quite a good school actually, um, not, not far from where we lived. It was 10 form entry. So if you're a teacher, that will mean something to you. 10 forms in, in each year, a senior school. Um, so that's what, 300 children. She was one of two white children in her year. And that's the way that schools just defaulted, really. You chose a school where you knew there were going to be people like you, which is the instinct of the human heart, to, to get together and to be with people who share your interests and your loves and your desires. But whatever the government did... Whatever plans and policies they implemented, they couldn't really bring those two groups together. Two groups were suspicious of one another. If, if not at the extreme, there was hatred, and that, of course, brought its own struggles. And there were different um, cultural ethos in the two different groups, a different work ethic in the two different groups, and they would go on holidays to different places. All those kinds of things, everything would be different. And there was no hope of bringing them together. Now, now the government recognised that it was desirable to bring them together. They just couldn't do it. And that is the wonder of the gospel. The gospel includes us together. It brings us together. It doesn't just give us a, a common goal, like me at St Andrews, Trillium Trophy Stadium. It doesn't just give us a common goal, or we're all worshipping Jesus. No, it does more than that. It's more profound than that. It includes us together. It makes us one. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 11. Now, it just needs a little bit of an explanation, but um, now I've just heard that you're um, using Uncover and just heard um, some of the things I've heard this morning. I realise you're all extremely bright. So you'll be able to keep up with how verse 11 works. If you read verse 11, first of all, it seems like Paul is repeating himself. Chosen. Well, he's already talked about being chosen, hasn't he? Predestined. He's already used that word. So, so what is Paul talking about in verse 11? Well, it works like this. Paul is writing mainly to Gentile Christians in Ephesus. Not entirely, but mainly Gentile Christians. And Paul is making the point in verse 11 and 12 that he, a Jewish background Christian, shares exactly the same blessings. In him, he says, just listen to it as though it's written by someone who comes from a Jewish background. In him, we were also chosen. You were chosen, Ephesians. We were also chosen. 
having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, that is, Jewish background believers, might be for the praise of his glory. You are for the praise of his glory, you Gentile Christians, so are we. And verse 13, you also were included in Christ. Those who are believers, those who have received the Spirit, those who are in Christ, are included together. That doesn't just mean that we're in the same room. It doesn't just mean we share the same goals. We are one new humanity. That's why we read from chapter 2. Just look down at chapter 2 again. And just look at how, it, at how extreme, really, the, the gospel is in the way that it, it challenges our preconceptions about our identity and who we are. In, in the Bible times, Jew and Gentile, that's as far apart as you can get. It's really very strong, the, the animosity, the hatred between the two groups. So read verse 14 in that light. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of facility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. That's making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Now, these days, we don't feel quite so much of the tension, Jew and Gentile, although, of course, it's in the news, isn't it, with all of the goings on in politics. But we don't feel it quite the same as they would have done then. We do feel other tensions, don't we? We do feel other tensions in society and, therefore, in the church. We feel tensions of culture. We feel tensions of race, we feel tensions of age, we feel tensions of Brexit preferences. It's true, it's, you know, there's no point denying that, it's very divisive. And what Paul is saying here is that the gospel brings people from different viewpoints, different backgrounds together and unites them. He makes one new humanity. He doesn't just put them on the same team, but he makes them one. Now, I think there's a, a truth here for us to really get to grips with this morning. Whatever your background, whatever your likes, dislikes, preferences, whatever they may be, the gospel makes us one. Being in Christ Jesus means that those dividers, the dividing wall of hostility, that probably refers to the law, but, but the, the dividing things between us are broken down and done away with. Now, that doesn't stop us denying who we are. You can still be a Christian and, and have voted leave. You can still be a Christian and vote remain. You can still be a Christian and have a, a Jewish background or a Gentile background. Paul talks about that in Galatians 3.28. He says, well, it doesn't deny that you're male and female, slave and free, Jew or Gentile, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. And what defines us is not our background, but that we are one in Christ Jesus. In other words... Um, we don't describe ourselves as Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians. That distinction doesn't really have the same weight. Just as we don't describe ourselves as, you don't come up to someone and say, I'm a male Christian. 
You don't just don't do that. I'm a Christian. I'm in Christ. I, I was explaining this at Lowestoft last week, and um, someone came up to me afterwards. I'm, I'm Jewish, by the way, and um, in my uh, uh, on my grandmother's side. And um, someone came up to me afterwards and said, "I'm so glad you're a Jewish Christian." And I thought, "Oh, have you not really listened to what I've been saying?" Never mind. So don't whatever you're tempted to do, don't come and say that to me afterwards. I might floor you. Um, <laughs> our identity is primarily that we are in Christ. That's what defines us. We are included together. We are brought together. And and that's just not something that does us good. It has a cosmic consequence. I want you to look across at chapter 3. We read chapter 3 yesterday. And I want you just to look at this. Because really this is sort of in in the blow blow your mind category. So look at what Paul says in verse Seven. Well, let's go back to verse six because he explains a little bit more about the mystery. This mystery is that the gospel, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Picking up the same language from chapter one. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am the less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Listen to this, verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What is this wisdom? It is this purpose of summing up all things in Christ. It's bringing all things together. It's bringing Jews and Gentiles together as one. When Jews and Gentiles are together as one in the church, it's not simply a a message to us. It's not simply a witness to the unbelieving world. It is a declaration to the principalities and powers that Christ is king. It is a declaration to, the, to Satan and all his demons that he has lost. When Christians are together, when inclusion properly works, when we understand what it means to be in Christ, then Satan looks down and he knows he has lost. That's what verse 10 says. It's a declaration to him. The manifold wisdom is being declared to him. He can't deny it. He can't get round it. He can't deceive himself that it's not true. He knows it is true. Now, on that basis, when we gather together, when we are together, when we are one, something out of this world is happening. Literally, something out of this world is happening. doesn't just do us good. doesn't just do others good. doesn't just do the world good. It is a punch in the face for Satan. Um, you were all asleep last night, so you didn't watch the boxing. Um, but the boxing was quite exciting last night. If you don't like boxing, I'm sorry, but boxing was quite, inf- quite exciting. Um, and um, Tyson Fury, you know, he's... Well, anyway. Um, it, the, it was finished off. He won on points in the end, but there was quite a lot of, you know, fist in the face. That's what happens with boxing. This kind of thing that if you or I got one of those in the face, you know, we'd, we'd be floored. And that is basically what happens when Christians are together. We are smashing Satan in the face. I don't apologise for the strong language. That's what we're doing. We are declaring to him the manifold wisdom of God. And we're saying, so there, take that. 
loser. That is the depth of being together. So what is this inclusion? This inclusion is acting as though we're together, not just believing it. As with all these blessings, it's not simply rejoicing that we're one in Christ Jesus. Isn't it wonderful that we're one together? It's working it through. It's working it out. It's acting upon it. So there is a blessing to rejoice in here, but there is also something to act upon. And it means that we are Christians, we are those who delight in being with people who are not like us. We rejoice in the way that we're brought together. Now, I don't know very much about Birmingham, but I know from conversations I've had with church leaders in Birmingham that large parts of Birmingham are very much like the east end of London. I don't think that's true, isn't it, Neil? There's, you know, there's, I wouldn't quite use the word sort of ghettoized, but there are areas where certain cultures and people groups are, are very dominant. And of course, you've got to represent the areas you come from. But we've got to be a church always which shows that we are inclusive, not in the way that the world would understand that, but in the way that the gospel understands that, rejoicing in where we come from, but recognising that in Christ we are one, included together. What does that mean in practice? Well, let me just use an example. Let's talk about singing. Singing is very emotive to some people. Some people like some songs, some people don't like other songs. So how do you get through life in church where people have different tastes? The answer is you employ toleration. You basically say to yourself, well, I'm going to put up with something I don't like for the sake of someone else. And we convince ourselves that that's a very Christian virtue. So, um, you know, that song we just sung, you say, oh, I don't really like that song, but um, and I, I know other people like it, but I do like it, by the way. Um, but you say, I, don't, I know other people like it, it's not really my cup of tea, so I kind of join in. That's toleration. And toleration is not the same as being included together. Being included together is sharing our likes and dislikes. So being included together is not simply about me saying, well, I didn't like that last song, so I'll put up with it. It's me saying, I know that, let me pick on Neil because I know his name. Sorry, Neil. I know that Neil likes that song, and so I'm going to like it too. It's not simply saying I'm going to put up with it. I'm one with him. The dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. So I'm to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I am to think of those in prison as though I were there with them. I'm to think of these songs that perhaps I wouldn't choose if I was leading a service as though I would. I'm going to delight in it. I'm often standing at the front. I lead the worship in our church, and it frustrates me when I see people not singing. I sometimes say to them, "Why aren't you? Why weren't you singing that song?" He said, "The person says I don't really like it very much." What's going on there? Or you sort of see someone just mumbling along the words. You say, "Oh yeah, I noticed you just been mumbling through that song." Oh yeah, I, I, I know other people like that song, so I join in. But it's not really my cup of tea. So do you think? Well, actually, that's that's not what inclusion is. Now, I've, I've chosen something which is hopefully not too contentious, singing. You know, you, you're singing the same songs I'm singing. I'm guessing you like, most of you like them. Um, you know, it's not, it's not too radical, is it? You're not pushing the boundary too much. Um, these things can be a real challenge. It's why leaders need such godly wisdom. Because actually, these things can be a real challenge in church. 
But the answer is not simply to divide into two. And this is the kind of the modern song singing side, and this is the older song singing side. That's not the answer. The answer is to practice what we are, which is included together. Now, how is that going to translate into church life? It's going to cover a whole load of stuff. It's going to cover your parenting strategy. It's going to cover, you know, how you approach work. It's going to cover how you, you know, what kind of food you eat. All kinds of things are brought in, but all those barriers are laid aside by the gospel as we're included together. I think I would go so far as to say the church is the only place that can be inclusive in this good gospel way. Nowhere else can be. People at Birmingham City Football Stadium, whatever it's called, they thought they were together. And they, they congratulate themselves that actually there's, there's me, a minister of the gospel, sitting next to someone who's, I don't know, a teacher, sitting next to someone who works for the council. Sitting next, and someone says, you know, isn't that great that we all come together? But at the end of the match, we'll go our separate ways. And we don't have anything to do with one another for another week till you're on the terraces again. It's not inclusion. Just happen to be in the same place. But the church is something altogether more profound. We are included. So let's just have a moment to think that through. Let's just have a moment of quiet and rejoice in the fact that we are brought together. It's not a negative. It's a positive because it's supernatural. And it is declaring to Satan how good and powerful and mighty God is to have done this thing that no one else can do. And then just think through to yourself, what is it particularly about my background, perhaps, that is challenging to others. We, we often think to ourselves, what is it about other people that is challenging to me? But let's turn that round. What is it about my background, my likes, my culture, that is challenging to others? Why don't you commit that to the Lord now? Amen. Well, that was number six. This is number seven. We are included, number six. We are sealed. Have a look at verse 13. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. To understand verse 13 and 14, you've got to come back with me to the slave market. No, it's not a particularly nice place to think about, but that's where we've got to go. And if you were living in Roman times and you were buying a slave, then you would do two things. You would go down to the market, you'd take a bit of cash in your pocket. You probably wouldn't take the full amount, because you don't want to be walking around with the full amount, so you'd take a bit of cash in your pocket. And if you saw a nice slave that you wanted in your household you would do two things. One is you'd pay a deposit. It wouldn't be the full amount, it would be the down payment. But the point is this, that once you've paid that, the slave belongs to you. No one else can come in and say, oh, I'd like to buy the slave instead. Um, If you've ever bought a house in Scotland, it's a bit like buying a house in Scotland. Anyone here ever bought a house in Scotland? Oh, a few people, yes, of course, yeah. Where once you put your deposit down, it's all binding. There's no t- it's not like buying a house in England where you can get gazumped and all the rest of it. It's, it's, um, well, in some ways it's more stressful. In other ways it's less stressful. But basically you put your deposit down in Scotland. That's it. The house is yours. We've got to buy a new car. 
And my daughter is taking our old car. We've got to buy a new car. And I'm trying to think, when can I do it? And I saw a car online. I think, well, actually, if I phone up the garage, which is in Sutton Coalfield, of all places, if I phone up the garage and I put a deposit down, then I can guarantee that if I can't get there for a week, that car will still be there in a week's time. It's a guarantee that something will become yours, isn't it? Just the same as it was in those days. That was the first thing you did. Your second thing you did is that you branded your slave. It's where it gets a bit barbaric. To show that the slave belonged to you. That's what sealed here means. We tend to think of, you know, when we see seal, we tend to think of a letter or a document. But actually the language comes from the slave market. Sealed is putting your mark on something to show that it belongs to you. Now, the sealing in itself is not necessarily um, good enough to protect your investment. I'll give you an illustration. Darren Jones. Darren Jones. Um, Darren Jones, right? Um, Every Christmas, when I was at primary school, um, Father Christmas, very kindly, bought me some stationery. Um, Satsuma, some walnuts, and um, some stationery. You know, a new pen. Actually, some ink cartridges. My ink pen, very handy. Um, he knew what kind of pen I used, which was always very helpful, and um, a new rubber for school. And I would get the rubber, and I would write on the rubber, this rubber belongs to Adrian. I sealed the rubber. You know where this story is going, don't you? Darren Jones, school bully. And what happened when I got to school, and Darren Jones, um, for some reason, Father Christmas didn't bring Darren Jones a new rubber in his stocking, um, and therefore, he saw my rubber, and do you know what he did? He took it. I told you the emotional scars are deep. <laughs> I was not kidding. And do you know what? I couldn't do anything about that, really, because Darren Jones, he was a big boy, and he was a bully, and he had his gang with him. So Darren Jones got my rubber. That was the end of that. So I had written my seal on the rubber, I had written my mark on the rubber, but it meant nothing, because it was not backed up with power. But when Darren Jones got my rubber and he crossed out, this belongs to Adrian, and wrote, this belongs to Darren, who do you think took it off him? No one. He had the power to back it up. So being marked with a seal counts for nothing unless the one doing the marking is powerful. So look across at chapter 1, verse 18 again. Look at what Paul prays. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul wants the Ephesians to know that this one who called them is powerful because it makes the seal effective. How powerful? That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. The power of God is beyond imagining. It raises the dead. And it's that power which is behind the seal on us. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, when does this seal come to us? Some people think this seal comes to you sometime after you become a Christian. That somehow you become a Christian and then sometime later you have some sort of experience where you're marked with the Holy Spirit, you're sealed with the Spirit. 
Now, I hope you can see that can't be the case. Can't be the case for two reasons. First of all, it can't be the case because of what the text says in verse 13. Now, different Bibles translate this different way, but I think the NIV, which I'm using here, has got it right. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. When you believed. And if there's any doubt about that, go back to verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There is not another blessing to come. So sealing cannot be in the future. It cannot be something that you experience separate from being chosen and being adopted and redeemed and forgiven and enlightened and included. It is one of these spiritual blessings in Christ. Now, I think Paul goes on to say in chapter 5 of Ephesians that there are deeper experiences of the Spirit. We all have these kind of ups and downs and there are times when we feel like we're walking more closely with Christ and we're full of the Spirit. There are these, these moments of experience, but the truth behind it all is this. You are sealed. Or rather, you were sealed. It has happened. God's seal is upon you. And this seal, this deposit, it guarantees our inheritance. I think Paul there means that we are God's inheritance. I know earlier on we were talking about us receiving an inheritance. But in the language of the slave market, the slave doesn't receive an inheritance. We are the inheritance of God's, I think. That's an idea Paul expands later in the letter. Uh, We are God's inheritance until the redemption of those who are his possession. In other words, he's put his seal on us. While we're living in this world, he's put his seal on us. He's paid the deposit so we will never stop being his. That's what it means to be sealed. We will never stop being his. Whatever comes our way, whatever tomorrow has to fling at us, whatever accusation Satan has to throw at us, we will never stop belonging to to him. You know, I don't think you're supposed to have a favourite blessing. <laughs> I think that's the way it works. Um, but this is an extraordinary culmination, isn't it? You have been chosen, always chosen. You have been adopted, always adopted. You have been redeemed, always redeemed. You have been forgiven, always forgiven. You've been enlightened, always enlightened. You've been included, always included. Because he has marked you with a seal, a deposit, the promised Holy Spirit guaranteeing our inheritance. One of my favourite hymns is a hymn by a man called Augustus Toplady, Anglican hymn writer from the early 19th century. And he wrote these words at the end of one of his hymns, hymn called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. Listen to these words. Yes, I to the end shall endure... As sure as the promise is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Just get that last line. More happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Those who have gone before, those who are now with Christ, they're happier than we are because we see with the eyes of faith. They see him as he really is. They're more happy than we are in that sense. But even though they're there in his presence, worshipping him, they are not more secure than we are. We are those who have been sealed. And friends, for those of you who don't feel sealed, not today, 
or maybe tomorrow or in the next week or in the next month. For those of you who, who go through periods, and we all do, when we feel far away from Christ, the feeling does not negate the truth. How much we feel something doesn't change how true it is. We are sealed. We have received a deposit. We belong to him. And nothing, nothing can take us from his hands. So all these blessings that are yours in Christ Jesus today, September, whatever it is, 15th, 2019, they will be yours on September the 22nd, that's next Sunday, isn't it, yeah? 29th and so on and so on and so on. We have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are chosen, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are enlightened, we're included. We are sealed forever. Let's spend a moment praying. And let's remind ourselves how this passage begins and ends. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It ends, all of this, to the praise of his glory. Father, we bless your name. We praise you. We honour you. You are glorious. You have done so much for us in Christ. You have shown yourself to be great and majestic and kind and compassionate and holy and wise and so much more besides. We praise you that you've joined us together. And we praise you, Heavenly Father, that we are yours forever. And that nothing, not life or death or hardship or famine or sword, nothing can separate us from your love. We want to praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.